How do you know the Word of God is really working in your life? One, it affects your speech. Two, it affects your compassion. And third, it brings purity of life. You are living cleaner and cleaner in a world that is getting dirtier and dirtier. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are continuing our study in the book of James. Today, we will finish our message entitled, How to Hear God's Word. Let's join Pastor Carl as he explains what it means to listen intentionally and consistently. Before I went to seminary, while I was still a campus pastor at Duke University, I took my very first course in Greek in 1981. And it was there in Duke Divinity School. They let campus pastors do it there for free. And I said, why not? And so I audited New Testament Greek first year. I was the most relaxed guy in the class. Everybody else was sweating bullets. Why? Because they had constant quizzes and tests and midterms and finals and papers, but I had none. But you see, the problem with auditors is they never graduate. And many of God's people just audit God's word with no real intention to obey it and to apply it. And you see it in many respects. There are people who come even to churches like this who have no intention of ever joining a church. They don't want to join a church. They want to date a church. (laughs) They don't want to join a church because they don't want the responsibilities and the commitment that comes with membership. There are some people who maybe have even come to know Christ, but they don't want to follow through with baptism. Now, let me just say, in the context of this passage, there are many Christians who audit sermons, but with no real intention of obeying it. How do I know? Because if you ask them, a guy did his doctoral dissertation on this very subject, and he went to a number of leading evangelical churches, and he interviewed people two hours after the sermon, and the percentage of the people who understood what the sermon was about was just alarming. And some of us, when this sermon is over, the notes are in the trash. We don't give it another thought because we're just auditing. We have no intention of letting this change our life. And again, not everyone who grows old grows up. And there are people who come Sunday after Sunday and they even mark up their Bibles, but there's no real life change. And so they are deluded. They are thinking they are spiritually mature, but they're really not. And so look at this phrase, prove yourselves doers of the word. By the way, that's a present tense, and it comes out in different translations differently. But he's basically saying, continue to be doers of the word. Keep on obeying the message. If you want to be able to practice your faith like a practicing doctor or a practicing nurse, you can't simply audit the course. You've got to get your hands dirty. You have to get involved and obey what God says. Otherwise, we delude ourselves. And we are the losers because we miss what God really has for us. A.W. Tozer wrote in his little short book, The Root of Righteousness, these words. Listen, he said, there is an evil under the sun 
It is the glaring disparity between theology and practice among professing Christians. So wide is the gulf that separates theory from practice that an intelligent observer of people who heard the Sunday morning sermon and later watched the Sunday afternoon conduct of those who have heard it would conclude that he had been examining two distinct and contrary religions. It appears that too many Christians want to enjoy the thrill of feeling right but are not willing to endure the inconveniences of being right. And that's not what God wants for us. So he says, prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. So having given an introduction, then an exhortation, he now moves to an illustration, James's illustration. And it's found here in verses 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So James is saying, if we're only auditors towards God's word and not doers, we're like a man who looks at himself in the mirror and he immediately forgot what he is like. And James's illustration is very important because he wants us to look in the mirror of God's word in a particular way. So he really underscores three truths. There are some people just, they only glance at the word. They only glance at the word, point A there in your outline. In Greek, most of you know, because you've been here long enough, some of you are brand new to the faith, but there are two words that come into the English text for man. There's the word anthropos that speaks of mankind. And so now in the new NASB uh, 2020, that again will come out next month, they'll put the word people. Or if brethren is in, in reference not just to males, but brothers and sisters, they'll put and sisters in italics. Well, there's the word man from the word Anthropos giving us our word anthropology. And it's a generic word, and it includes men and women alike. But there's another word for man in the New Testament, and it's the Greek word arnir. And it specifically refers to someone of the male sex. Do you know which word he uses here? He uses the latter word, arnir. He is talking about how a literal physical man looks at himself in the mirror. Why? Because those of us who are of the male gender are a perfect illustration of how we are not to look into God's word. A man tends to just glance at the mirror where a woman tends to, she gazes. She looks much more intently. I can get ready real quickly for church but I need to make sure, let's see, the zipper's up. You know, that's embarrassing for a preacher. The buttons are down, tie is straight, no shaving cream in the air. But a woman, well, it's a little more involved. See, my tendency is just to glance. A man looks in a mirror and says, yeah, that's me. And a woman looks in a mirror and she says, oh, my. A guy looks in the mirror, not too bad. And a woman looks, I can't believe that's me. I mean, you just count the number of pieces of machinery it takes a woman to get ready, and you can understand the big difference. And we don't mind it all. We love it, as long as we're not waiting in the car for such a dear woman. By the way, God made us male and female. That's something that our culture wants to deny. That's something that the current administration this week by executive order, is trying to erase 
and with an appointee who is a transgender person. And this, listen, you need to pray for our president. We need to pray for our vice president. They're both lost. I hope you don't think they're saved. How can someone who sanctions, and again with another executive order and statement this week, the murder of little babies in the womb, how can someone herald perversion and say that they have a regenerate mind? Oh, they're religious. They went to church. A lot of religious lost people. Some Christians, they read and study the Word of God, and they're just like a man who looks in the mirror. They glance. Point B, they quickly forget the Word. They forget the Word. Look at verse 24. For once he's looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So James is teaching that because someone just glances at the word and does not really see the word, he doesn't really remember even what he's heard. And that was critical in the first century because unless you were someone like the Ethiopian eunuch who had a tremendous amount of money and could buy your own personal scroll, it was essential that when you came to church, the public reading of Scripture not be neglected because that was the one way you were typically going to get it. And so if you just glance, you forget what you hear. So you need to take a hard look, blemishes and all, whatever you see in the mirror of God's Word. Now, there's two ways in our day to see yourself. One would be in a picture, so to speak, or the other in a mirror. They didn't have the opportunity, obviously, of a photograph in his day, but they could look in a mirror. You know, years ago, we used to go to Olin Mills. These young families have no idea how blessed they are that they don't have to do something like that. You know, we, we carry these handheld computers in our pocket, and we can take pictures better than anything they could produce. And sometimes we would go because you had to go back to get your quote-unquote free photo, and you'd look at the proofs, and man, you say, man, that doesn't look too good. But, you know, they pressure you, and they con you into buying at least something, and then you get the pictures back and say, man, I look pretty good in that. Why? Because they've doctored it up. <laughs> they've taken out all the blemishes. God's Word, when you look hard into it, <clears throat> it will show you blemishes and all. It's like looking at your soul, and you will see dirt and filth. So sometimes Christians hear the word and they only glance, and so they quickly forget, and typically, therefore, they fail to obey the word. They fail to obey it. God is saying here through the Apostle James that when you look carefully into the Bible, not just a brief glance at it, but when you look intently into it, you will not forget what kind of person you are. And so your tendency then will be to say, oh, Lord, you have spoken to me today as if I were the only person in the auditorium. You spoke to my heart today, and I want to obey what you've shown me. So notice the contrast here in verse 25. But 
One who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Now notice how he refers to God's law as the perfect law. And it's perfect because it is teleos, it is complete, it lacks nothing. It is the revelation of God Almighty. And referring to it as law, the scripture as law, he is underscoring its authoritative nature. In addition, notice he calls it the law of liberty. You see, when you understand the Bible to be perfect and complete, the revelation of God, then you will find it to be the law of liberty when you obey it. It just puts a joy in your soul, puts a spring in your step, it puts a smile on your face, it puts a freedom in your spirit, and you're changed and you love it and you want more. People say, well, you know, I'm free to do whatever I want. When I hear a sermon, I'm free to do whatever I want. You're absolutely free to do whatever you want. You can do anything you want. And that's the new motto of today. You know, all kinds of trash. Love is love. I'm free. My wife had to instruct me. I didn't know what love is love is. And she gave me the bottom line and the backstory behind this new phrase pagans are using. I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Yes, you can. You are free to do whatever you want, but you are not free to escape the consequences. Next time someone tells you that, bring them up on the roof of your house and say, why don't you jump off? Oh, no, I don't want to do that. Jump off. You're free to do whatever you want, but you're not free to escape the law of gravity. I don't like that law. I don't understand that law. My friend, when you hit the ground, you will have full comprehension. You see, you are free to choose, but you are not free to escape the consequences of that choice. So King David said, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So he's given us a foundation by giving us this introduction. He gives us this exhortation, followed by an illustration. Now let's conclude with James' application. How do I know if God's word is falling like rain on a marble slab or like rain on fertile soil? How do I know if God's word is really and truly changing my life? Well, let me give you the Apostle James three applications in the form of three questions. Question number one, can I control my tongue? Can I control my tongue? Now, we find in verses 26 and 27 a test application where he gives us three proof positives that we are truly being changed by what we are hearing. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. You see, the tongue reveals the heart. That's why Jesus said, the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. And if the heart is right, the speech will be right. When we come to chapter 3, he is going to expound this in great detail. If you don't like conviction, don't come that week, because we'll be convicted all over. But you see, some people measure spirituality by, quote-unquote, speaking in tongues. A question came in the Bible line just a week, week or so ago about speaking in tongues. 
And I often remind people, that's no mark of spirituality. The most carnal, disobedient, rebellious church in the New Testament expressed that gift repeatedly, a first century gift. Spirituality in Paul's mind, and certainly here in James' theology, was not whether or not you speak in tongues, but how you handle that one little two-inch piece of flesh in your head. And so the first proof is, can I control my tongue? If I am growing more and more and more like Christ in my speech, then the word is having an impact. Secondly, do I have a concern for others? Do I have a concern for others? Look at verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is to visit orphans and widows in their distress. For the first few years I was a Christian, I thought, what, in ver- what on earth does that have to do with me? I don't have a clue. James is talking about here someone who visits widows and orphans, that he has the genuine item. Not necessarily. Keep in mind, James is not telling people, first of all, that if they want to enter the kingdom of God, they do it by visiting orphans and widows. Remember, he's speaking contextually to my beloved brethren, to people who are already saved. In addition, he's speaking to a culture that was covered over in orphans and widows. There were zero government programs, and much of the compassion, if any, were going to be shown. It was typically shown by the body of Christ. But James is saying, among other things, first of all, those who visit. And by the way, the word here for visit is not a Greek word for a social visit. There's another word like that. The word that he uses here is someone who comes with a view towards helping. Orphans and widows. People that you would help who could give nothing back to you. In other words, you're not doing the get. You're doing it purely out of compassion. We're not a culture covered over in these United States with orphans and widows, so we have some. But James is saying, listen, when you give of your time, maybe it's serving little children in the nursery who, quote, unquote, can't repay you, though you're blessed when you help them, or when you use your gifts and your talents in the church and there's no financial remuneration, or you come and you give the first 10% of what God has increased, and you expect nothing in return, no expectations. James is saying that kind of concern is the genuine item. That's what the gospel does. It changes people from the inside out. Are you willing to help people who can't pay you back? And God would say, because that's what I did when I gave my son. You could never pay me back. So can I control my tongue? Do I have a concern for others? Third, am I living clean clean in a dirty world? Am I living clean in a dirty world? Let's read all of verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father is this, of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Then he adds, to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, what precisely does that mean? Well, the word world is translated 
It's the word cosmos, and it's used in different ways in different contexts in the New Testament, much like various English words. But most of the time, interestingly, when you see the word cosmos, it's not referring just to the mass of humanity, like God so loved the world he gave his son, but it's speaking of the ungodly moral value system that pagans are postulating. And so John will say, do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world's passing away. And so he's basically saying that someone who has the word of God operating in their life is they are learning progressively to keep themselves unstained by the world. In other words, the world's value system is not shaping you. Now, it's easy to rationalize. It's easy to say, well, you know, why should I help that person? He's just lazy. He's just getting what he deserves. Or orphans, well, you know, uh, let the government take care of them. Or there's so many in the world. My wife and I have been involved with Compassion International for 40 years. There's a never-ending number of orphans that you could care for. I have one relative who has 10 kids with compassion. Too many can't do anything. Widows, well, you know, Paul does say certain widows should be on the list. Not every widow, but some should be on the list, and the church should take care of them. That's not my problem. And James is just asking, look, How do you know the Word of God is really working in your life? One, it affects your speech. Two, it affects your compassion. And third, it brings purity of life. You are living cleaner and cleaner in a world that is getting dirtier and dirtier. To put it in the words of the Apostle Paul, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. In other words, we're like a movie. Paul said we are to be a living epistle. People ought to be able to see our lives so radically changing and progressing they realize we have a relationship with the living God. That's the promise of the new covenant. The new deal, you know, our Bible is divided into the Old Testament, diathike, covenant, the old covenant, and the new covenant. That's the second half of the Bible. The Old Testament was looking forward to the new covenant because what was lost in the Garden of Eden, Christ is able to restore. So in speaking to the nation of Israel in two critical passages, one Ezekiel, the other Jeremiah, referenced in the New Testament as having fulfillment not just for the Jew, but for Gentiles in this age, but ultimately fulfilled in the Jew. He said, for I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your land. And if you read that section of Scripture, he's not just talking about those who are up in Babylon, and he's from the nations, plural, from the four corners of the world, God says he's going to gather the Jews. And he's been doing that in an unprecedented way. And God says he'll do that at the end of time. First, there's going to be a physical regathering, which tells you we are approaching the end of the age because God says he'll do that at the latter time before Messiah comes. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. There has to be a physical regathering before there can be a spiritual renewal. 
and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove this heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. That's what a new birth does. It changes you. Jeremiah has just called this the new covenant, and then he adds, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? Because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Why? Because I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Listen, to be born from above, you have to have your sin forgiven. You have to have an imputed righteousness, a righteousness that replaces your unrighteousness. And God does it on the basis of cross, the cross, the one who knew no sin became sin, and he imputes on the merits of Christ's death a righteousness to your account such that for the first time ever, the Spirit of God comes to live inside of you. And my friend, when he does, everything changes. Things are never the same. Now, when he comes to live inside of you, you become a babe in Christ. And your response to the word of God will determine whether or not you mature in Christ. Now, listen, if you're here today, God wants to remember your sin no more. You say, does he have amnesia? No. He knows every wicked thing I have ever done or could do. And all sin is wickedness. But he doesn't hold it against me. He'll bury your sin in the deepest sea. He'll remove it as far as the east is from the west. And he'll put the Spirit of God in you. I just baptized someone who on Thursday night came and said, I'm not sure I'm saved. And I want to get it right. I don't know where you are today, but if you're not sure you're saved, typically it means you're not. I mean, how can you be made alive and regenerated by the Spirit and the love of God have been poured out in your heart and become a new creation and not know it? But some of us, we've crossed that line maybe years ago. And there are people who will come to this church once and only once. Christian people, because they don't want any longer than a 20-minute sermon. And they're not here to grow. They're here to be entertained. But some of you are serious. But you don't want to just go through the motions. You want to make sure things are right. You want the Word of God to go through your life so that you're changed and shaped by it for the glory of God. Now, our Father, we thank you today for the opportunity to examine this portion of Scripture. But in James's words, as we often recite them, help us not just to be those who hear, but those who are willing to obey. 
So take the truth today. Help us with King David to pray. Examine my heart, O God. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And help me to be properly related to the only book you've ever written. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Word of God is not for our entertainment, but for our growth. If you would like a copy of today's message in its entirety, go online to searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 004. Tomorrow, Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. When we return Monday, Pastor Carl will begin a new message from the book of James. Join us then as we search the scriptures.